Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Film Chat, a podcast all about Glendon Wasey, played by Sam Foster, a sleazy down as luck con man struggling to sell glow in the dark neckties in Shanghai. One day encounters the lovely Gloria Tatlock played by me, Danny Moran, a missionary nurse who wants to obtain a supply of opium to ease the suffering of my patients. Glendon decides to help me get hold of a supply of this valuable drug. The only problem is that a lot of people want to secure the stolen opium as well. Gangsters, smugglers, thugs, and a host of dangerous lowlives. If you're thinking this sounds like a verbatim reading of the plot synopsis from the Wikipedia page for the 1986 film Shanghai Surprise starring newlyweds Sean Penn and Madonna, you would be correct. If you think this is an intro to a podcast where we talk about and review films, you would also be correct. I'm Danny Moran, and joining me is an angry, intense young man famous for attacking the paparazzi, Sam Foster. Hello. This week, we're celebrating the start of a period of great cheer, a time of indulgence, but also quiet reflection. Not Christmas, of course, but Danny Moran's cinematic season of plenty. When his intensive film festival watching really comes into its own. He's got enough reviews lined up for the next few weeks to leave your ears sore and your brain uncomfortably swollen on great opinions. This week he'll let us know what he made of A United Kingdom, Ama Asante's historical drama about an African prince and his against-all-odds romance with a humble white Englishwoman, and The Unknown Girl, which is the latest effort from the Dardan brothers, a very famous pair of Belgian directors who I would know something about if I was a real film reviewer and not a jumped-up podcasting poser. Danny and I will also be reviewing Korean horror epic The Wailing, which is like Paul Blart Mall Cop meets The Exorcist, meets The Witcher video games, meets Twin Peaks, meets You on a Moonless Night, and freaks you the fuck out. That's basically my review right there. Plus, we talk about some more stuff, including a long-promised discussion that finally makes the intro jingle accurate, Sasha Barra Cohen's plans to target a new socio-economic bracket for his next transgressive cum-filled comedy, and if we're lucky, the next entry in our series of interviews with eccentric francophone filmmakers. All that should leave just enough time for me to open the first 700 windows of my special 36,000 window advent calendar, themed after the Arnold Schwarzenegger film Jingle All the Way. It marks every minute until Christmas, with a different still image from the festive comedy romp, which I will describe in exhaustive detail. Whether it's Arnie looking lovingly at a child, or Arnie holding an oversized candy cane, or any number of other things that Arnie does (laughs) over the course of the film's 95 minutes. Films, 
some John Woo films, films that star Peter Fitch, films by David Lynch, films short, films six hours long. We've got films up to your gills with films, 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 movies. Are you feeling comfortable? Film chat has begun. Um, it's exciting times in the film chat studio. Chris Young is here. We got uh, hello everyone. We got Chris Young with us. He's Hi. written into film chat many times, Hi. and some of the stuff he was writing was so good. We thought we'd reach out to him and meet him in person. Um, it's really nice to be here. It's uh, not at all how I expected. It's much more. It's just much better. It's it's beyond my wildest dreams, guys. Oh, thanks so much, Chris. Wow, you seem like a very nice, very nice man, very nice young man, very well mannered. Um, we've got one piece of correspondence this week from <laughs> in, in someone who, in Danny's notes here, is called Jack Hoskins. Um, yeah, Jack Hoskins. Jack Hoskins. Jack says, you fuckers are nearly 100 episodes in, and as far as I can tell, you haven't talked about any John Woo films, let alone some. Pricks. So Jack is referring to um, the intro jingle there, in which... Um, I talk about John Woo films in my little sing song that I do. I mean, how many of those l- lyrics are accurate? Because we haven't discussed any Lars von Trier films. Yes, I'm, I'm sure we have discussed well, like, Lars von we Trier. Haven't like, any. Many, we haven't reviewed any bit. What about films starring Peter Finch? He died like 40 years ago. We must ago. have mentioned Network, though. I think we have. Do you think? Okay. Films by David Lynch. Have we done that? Lynch must have come up. <laughs> I feel like... Films that are six hours long? Napoleon? Oh shit! That? No, that no, that was just shy of six. That was like five forty. No! <laughs> Wait, how long was Hard to Be a God? That was like three hours long. Oh. Was... No, 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 I thought it was longer than that. No, it felt like six hours long. But oh man! All right, one well, Napoleon. That's that's surely we've closed to take that one off. <laughs> anyway, uh, da- like David Lynch. We talked hmm. about Twin Peaks. I think maybe. Well, I just Peaks mentioned too. Twin Peaks just like one second ago. All oh, right, okay. So that covers that. Uh, you know, we have <laughs> no because we talked about uh, the new TV series, haven't we? And uh, yeah, the rest I think. I think the rest is basically covered. We definitely mentioned Network before, and uh, Lars von Trier I think has come up several times. So has, she, has Meryl Streep been Oscar tipped while you've been podcasting? That's us? a different. That's a different jingle, of course. I'll tell you what. Like, <laughs> I think one thing that I did notice is that I've got I've got a line in that news one about um, Michael Bay making lots of money or something. Mm. Michael Bay's made a mint, and then like his most recent movie was that Benghazi thing, and it didn't do very well. So I don't know. He wasn't paying much so attention to my narrative about him. But he hasn't got any money, and Meryl hasn't been Oscar tip. So if you jingle something, I'm not sure Matt Damon's happened. Matt Damon's done a good viral video lately either. Because I wrote that jingle after he did that thing about like not going to the toilet for like to raise awareness about water or something. I didn't really didn't raise that much awareness with me, obviously, because I don't remember what it was. <laughs> but um, so is it? I'm just. Yeah. I think like, I'm just killing. You're like reverse stuff Nostradamus dead. or something like. Yeah, you just jingle something. If you just jingle like Danny hasn't dated Jennifer Lawrence, yeah. that would be ideal for me. Yeah, sure. Then I could, you know. Yeah, Danny's not fucking Jennifer Lawrence. That's going to be a key lyric in my next jingle. But I, I feel like I feel like we should. Um... <laughs> that might, that really doesn't scan very well. <laughs> well, I've had, it's probably going to be a new. Maybe I'll do a whole new little song <laughs> that can give you the perfect life that you've always wanted. Another nail in uh, the coffin of my reputation as someone who knows his shit. 
I, I don't think I've seen any John Woo film from start to finish. I've seen a little bit of Mission Impossible 2. <laughs> I, like, I, th- I probably saw about like 10 of the 80 times someone removes a like mask and is revealed to be someone else in that film. Uh, but yeah, I haven't seen much. What about you guys? I've seen The Killer and Hard Boiled and yeah. Face Off. Yeah, I uh, bought the DVD of Hard Boiled for a pound at HMV, um, but uh, some friends used the disc as an ashtray at a party at university which was really impractical and quite annoying. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a good ashtray at all. Yeah, and I never got to watch it. That's a shame, It's good. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, Chowing in fact, he's looking after a baby and shooting people or something? Yeah, it's essentially. It. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very accurate braces of the plot. <laughs> there you go. I know, my, I know my shit. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, there we are. We discussed some John Woo films. There we go. We're done with that now. Superhero films announced. Casting rumors leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated. Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated. Meryl Streep's Oscar tips. Matt Damon's in a viral vid. Michael Bay's made a mint. That's the news that's fit to print. So, um... Dan Trachtenberg, who's the director of Ten Glowfield Lane, which is a bit of a sleeper hit this year. Or, I don't know, just a regular hit. It was a small-budget film that but people liked. Made money. He, um... Previously made a film called Portal No Escape, a short film based on the Portal video game. Then he made a film about a woman escaping from a house. And some Hollywood producers like, this guy knows about escaping. He should make a film about the escape artist, Harry Houdini. Mm. So that's what he's going to do. There's been a... This has been in the um, Hollywood pipeline for a while. A Houdini biopic with directors such as Joe Wright and Gary Ross being attached at various points. And Johnny Depp was also attached. But I guess now he's just uh, Hollywood poison, so he can't be in any films. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be based on a book about Houdini called The Secret Life of Houdini, The Making of America's First Superhero by William Kalesh and Larry Sloman. And so it's not really clear what direction he'll take, but he's a pretty interesting guy, Houdini. Famous debunker of psychics and frauds because he was mates with Arthur Conan Doyle, who weirdly was a bit of a spiritualist. I might just be repeating something you already know, but his wife was into communicating with the dead and, like, writing letters and she did one for Houdini from his dead mother. And it said, like, Harry, I'm okay. But his mother was from Budapest. He was Hungarian, didn't speak English. And his real name's Eric. Right, so like, yeah, yeah. It's obviously bullshit. And I think that oh, was one of the reasons he became so passionate about debunking these people. Because he was so offended at this, like, his supposed friend's wife would, like, try and fool him. That's a, Yeah, that's a really cool, kind of, that's a cool story. Yeah. I have a cool story about Houdini that I googled. Uh, would you like to hear it? Yes, yes please. Yes, please, Chris. Um, well, according to the Mother Nature Network, Houdini was an early aficionado of aviation, and he learned to pilot his own voisin biplane, and was the third person to fly across Australia in 1910. Wow. That is interesting. So he escaped gravity as well. <laughs> yes. Very impressive. <laughs> mm. Um, according to the book um, on which the film is presumably going to be based, he also worked with the British intelligence and the US Secret Service and other law enforcement agencies. So we can look forward to a thrilling film in which he performs feats of magic, works as a secret agent, uh, flies in a plane, <laughs> and uh, debunks um, mediums. Yeah, It's going to be a sick film. What I would say is that I'm not a huge fan of biopics, but... I like the idea of a biopic about somebody like Houdini is like everyone knows his name but knows nothing really about his life. Mm. So you're not beholden to like a checklist of events that you have to depict. I'm kind of imagining something like, that's going to be a bit like Confessions of a Dangerous Mind but, where it's like this mm. crazy life, you know, and some of it may be true and some of it maybe not. 
That's what I'd like to see anyway. And Dan Trachtenberg knows how to film people escaping. So yeah, pff, yeah, that was that was a really task. you really um, picked up on the thread of his directing career so far. It's very good. <laughs> and now to escape this conversation. <laughs> Next news item: Sasha Baron Cohen, one of the greatest comedians working today, recently made Grimsby. He was featured on the podcast recently. Danny took us through the epic um, elephant cum scene in that. So he's got a new project which he is lining up with Michael Winterbottom, the very prolific but rather patchy British director of all sorts of things like The Trip and uh, 24-Hour Party People. 24-Hour Party People and that movie called The Angel something or other. Oh, Face of an Angel. Face of an Angel. Yeah, all that stuff. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> That memorable film. That guy. <laughs> angel Face. <laughs> well, I think that's the last Michael Winterbottom movie that I watched and it was bad. That's my um, recap review of that. They're teaming up for a comedy called Greed. And Sasha Baron Cohen is going to play a billionaire retail magnet as the uh, film is taking a satirical look at the world of the super rich. And that's about all we know about it. So he recently played a stupid poor man, and now he's going to play a stupid rich man, thus showing himself to be quite an egalitarian comedian who can poke fun at all sections of society. Absolutely. I was thinking, because it sounds a bit, obviously, you can do the parallel of Trump, right? Yeah, sure. It's very, very, uh, yeah. What I was thinking is like, his biggest success is um, the Borat movie, or the character Borat. And his whole thing was about disarming people to re- reveal their own bigotry. Yeah. But now that bigotry's gone mainstream, like, the whole, like, tension was, like, the shock of this, you know, people re- saying anti-Semitic things or whatever. But now that's just on TV all the time. Like, how does <laughs> right, he approach yeah. it? Do you know what I mean? Like, Borat nowadays... Like, if, if Borat went to a Trump rally, it would be, like, wouldn't be funny anymore. It'd You're right. Be, like... Yeah. And also, like, <laughs> Trump is does not have that characteristic whatsoever. Everyone yeah. knows what his views are. Yeah, yeah. He's got no, like, self-awareness. He's there's, so brazen. There's no veil, you know. Yeah. Yeah, now the, yeah the veil's completely fallen. The whole thing was, like, um, I don't know, the tension of, like, what people like behind closed doors. And, yeah. like, by acting really stupid, he would reveal it. But now the doors are open. I mean, well, where does this comedy go? We're we're in a time where events have moved so quickly that they've left satire behind a little bit, and um, no one is effectively satirizing what's going on right now. And it would be great if someone could step up to the plate and do it well. But I'm not convinced that Sasha Baron Cohen's hilarious version of a Trump type character, um, and possibly also a sort of um, Philip Green esque, you know, tycoon or like Mike Ashley, whatever it is. Um, whether he is necessarily going to you know, bring that fresh look that yeah. we'd want. What do you reckon, Chris? Well, I don't know. Um, I, I agree with you guys. I, didn't he try to do some sort of vague satire in The Dictator? I didn't actually see it, so I don't know if that was satirical or just a... I think it was intended to be, comedy. yeah. Yeah, but it's pretty... But apparently it wasn't very good. I didn't see it. I've only seen bits of it. Yeah. I, I, does anyone jizz in it on anyone? I'm sure of I'm sure they do. If you were a billionaire magnate, what animal's anus would you crawl inside? Is there any animal that eats gold? Because <laughs> then so, you so might be gold inside. Well, you might crawl inside its anus to collect the um, like unprocessed. <laughs> no, I'm just assuming that it doesn't digest the gold very well. <laughs> I don't know. I think maybe. Maybe like a snow leopard, you know, like because those are very 
very uh, rare. Very rare. Yeah. So you have to be wealthy and have the resources yeah, exactly. to track it down. All right, you're no taking one, a slightly different approach. Yeah, well, no one, no one else is going to like. No one ever really sees those things. So, crawling in, inside one's ass is, I mean. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he's not. I would say I'm not sure if he's fearless or he's just like lacking any vanity. And we need a bit of sort of satire with some uh, some bite to it. So maybe, you know, I feel like if Michael Winterbottom just asked him to do anything, he'd be up for it. Yeah. You know? So, Winterbottom I, made a very explicit sex film, didn't he? Called Nine Days. Nine songs. Nine songs. Mm. Ah, got it's it wrong. A much shorter film. Yeah. yeah. Nine songs. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe he'll just get him to uh, get his dick out, fuck people. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He crawls out of the snow leopard and just like fucks another one. Uh, why not? Uh, there's too much testosterone in the, in the, in the pod booth now. Uh, they added men. This is what happens when you get all the lads in. Yeah. Oh, no. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, I apologize. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. <clears throat> Apologize to everyone listening. And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw. Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it ass-punchingly poor? How did Danny form a judgment? We're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off. So, A United Kingdom. This is the new film directed by Amar Santi, who previously directed Bell, that period drama about a mixed-race woman growing up in a completely white society. And uh, this one is written by Guy Hibbert, who recently who recently, as Sean Connery would say, uh, had success with Eye in the Sky, that drone movie. And it is based on the true story of Soretsi Karma, played by David Oyelowo, who was the heir to the throne of Botswana land, which is now Botswana. And in 1947, he was studying law in London, and he meets a white British woman called Ruth Williams, played by Rosamund Pike, and the two fall in love and get engaged, which causes something of a scandal both for the native people of Botswana land and the British authorities who run Botswana land. Uh, here personified by Jack Davenport and Tom Felton in full sneery evil Brit mode. And basically, the Brits want to keep South Africa happy because they rely on them for economic reasons. They've got gold and uranium and the South Africans are about to introduce the apartheid. So they don't want an interracial couple just across the border. So uh, if you've seen the poster for this film or the trailer, you have a pretty good idea of what you're in store for. And... Every year, films like this come around where it's like The Imitation Game or Fear of Everything, where it's important story plus uh, good actors, uh, handsomely mounted. It's a bit like something, very it's a bit like The King's Speech or something, isn't it? Sure. Like that like, won an Oscar, so now we have something that's doing a similar thing every year. Yeah, and um, of those types of films, I think it's one of the better examples, purely because the actual history it's covering is genuinely fascinating. But it is a very, very safe film, and I was never really engaged with it. And I think one of the main reasons this is is that it talks down to its audience a lot, and it feels that it's very anxious that the audience understands the dramatic stakes of their relationship. And to do so, you have to understand the sort of balance of international power in the 1940s, uh, which is like a bit complicated, but not particularly complicated. But it overcompensates to the point that 
pretty much all the dialogue is contextualizing everything all the time, uh, much to the detriment of the film. There's literally a bit where Jack Davenport says, do you know what apartheid means? And it's like, yes, (laughs) (laughs) obviously I do. Yeah. Um, But that is sort of atypical of the dialogue. And there's a lot of characters explaining stuff that other characters would obviously know just for the benefit of the audience. And it's just so functional getting from A to B that it's very hard to invest in it. Uh, And there's like no real space for the audience. Like you're just being told things the whole movie. It never gives you um, the benefit of the doubt. You know, nothing ambiguous about this film. However, though I wasn't emotionally engaged in the story, it was to an extent interesting because it's a really interesting bit of history and basically through some uh, plot machinations, which I won't go into, the couple are separated in the second half of the movie and the film switches to the British government, the upcoming 1950 election where Churchill got back in and our history of imperialism. And that's when the film's really working. And even though it's a very broadly drawn film and the characters kind of borderline panto at times, like Tom Felton is just doing sort of like colonial Draco, Draco Malfoy. He can only play Draco Malfoy. That's his only role people allow him to play. He's either like Draco torturing apes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Draco oppressing the uh, yeah. Africans. And it's, yeah. it's a bit sort of boo-hiss, but the actual facts are truthful. And we have a very hagiographic... Is that words? Hagiographic? Hagiographic relationship with our history, like the British people. And it's usually perpetuated by films of this nature. But this one actually says, you know, hey, we did a lot of horrible stuff. And, you know, we didn't beat the Nazis and the welfare state. It was all great. There's still this legacy of imperialism interfering with international affairs and cozying up to apartheid. It's it's also good because it's quite late for that kind of movie. Like, yeah, you know, it's a good reminder. I mean, you could, there's a lot of like 19th century colonial uh, movies where you're like, yeah, yeah, you know, sure. But we got rid that of that. Sort of, yeah, exactly. But we did it. But like 1947, it's late to have this stuff. Yeah. And Churchill's a bit of a dick in it. Got to say, mm. Churchill. There is one great, this is not really a point, but there's a great bit where Soretzi is um, exiled in Britain and there's a knock at the door and there's like all these progressive Labour MPs have come to like champion his case and this guy's like, hello, I'm Anthony Benn. It's like, it's Tony Benn. Oh, really? Like 25-year-old handsome Tony Benn. And as lefty that I am, I was like, this movie just became amazing. Five well, stars. Five stars. Um, but anyway, um, this political stuff is quite interesting, but uh, it's like half political thriller, half romance drama and the romance is by far the weakest element of the film and it's very clumsily handled the opening 20 minutes are a bit of a slog they sort of meet they exchange glances they dance uh glances and dances glances dances get engaged get ostracized get married all of them about this all of in the space about 20 minutes and it's just very flat and uh it's really lacking a bit of passion you know like these people defied uh, authorities and risk being ostracized by their respective homelands and it needs a bit of like it needs it's a bit sexless you know it's just it's a bit too yeah oh hello oh okay yes and there's like one tiny bit of a sexing on the wedding night and i was like this is a movie where sexing would actually be good i feel you need a bit of passion and um they're both very good actors uh but they're a bit too old for the roles they're playing and i think they david oyelowo was a producer in the film so he championed and got it um together but he's and it's never really explicit what the ages they are they're playing but in real life they were like in their mid-20s and both of um, rosamund pike and him i think sort of late 30s but it doesn't really make sense that they would do this in their 30s he's like i've got to go home and learn to be a king is like you're almost 40 man it's like what are you doing like you should have you know it's the sort of thing where like 
I can imagine a 25-year-old making this impetuous decision, but a 40-year-old wouldn't. Right, yeah. So it does actually like affect the dramatic stakes of the movie. And this romance is sidelined in the second half, which was a bit of a relief because it wasn't working, but it means that Rosamund Pike just gets forgotten about. I don't know, like, I'm just a bit worried that David Oyelowo is only doing roles where he just, like, delivers emotional speeches and people clap. <laughs> <laughs> That's certainly the impression I got from the trailer for this movie. Like, that was, it's true of Queen of Catway and, and this, and it's like, I think he, like, there's a reason you're producing all these movies, David. You always, you're awesome in them. I want to play the awesome guy. Everyone applauds. Um... But yeah, it's just got that classic biopic problem where it just rattles through events in a way where it pays everything lip service and uh, didn't really have enough of, didn't really have a focus. I'm not really sure what the film's about. But unlike other films, the history is really interesting. So I was entertained on that level just because I had loads of details I didn't know. And my mum liked it. So core audience. Pleased. Pleased. It's just a movie, isn't it? It's just one of those films. Look at that poster, and the reaction that inspires from you is the film, I would say. Fair enough. That's certainly... Well, everything you said really chimes with my impression I got from the trailer for the movie. Yeah. Which um, looked like it was, yeah, I mean, interesting setting, but, like, definitely some rather broad notes, including Jack Davenport saying something like, now you will see what happens when you defy an empire. Yeah, pretty I much. I think he's a baddie. Mm. It's a movie says, have you no shame? <laughs> have you no shame, sir? I love my wife, but I love my people. And I love delivering speeches. <laughs> and I love crying. I love crying, giving speeches. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. <laughs> You're welcome. Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're gonna hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. A joint review shared between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other? The light is on, the guys are in, so let the chat begin. Start talking now. So... I watched a film called The Wailing the other night. This is another one that Danny has also seen because he saw it at London Film Festival. I was invited at the time. I blew it off. And, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> you children, stop, stop sniggering. I was thinking, I was thinking about whales and blowholes and that's yeah. what was funny to me. I yeah. see. It's a great whaling pun, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Good whaling pun to start the review. Um, this is a Korean movie directed by, um, someone called Na Hong Jin who directed a very good crime thriller called The Chaser and subsequently another one called The Yellow Sea, which Dan- I haven't seen, but Danny says is great. So <laughs> so this is his new film. <laughs> um, it's a, uh, yeah, we just finish each other's sentences. It's like... Finish each other's... Sandwich, sandwiches. Um, <laughs> so this is a hard to categorize horror epic it's a little bit of a departure um by this director it is set in a small village in uh, south korea and it's about a somewhat bumbling policeman who's investigating a series of strange events where it seems like people are getting ill going crazy and committing horrific crimes and um suspicions fall in various different places um, including on possible mushrooms that might be driving people crazy, or this mysterious Japanese man who lives out in the woods and is sort of seen near the scenes um, where where things are happening. Um, and things get generally increasingly spooky and strange. 
Um, we don't have a good clip of this because it is in Korean. So here is a bit of a cartoon whale singing a song. Don't be frightened. I'm really quite friendly once you get to know me. But people don't understand me. When I was a baby, my mother said, Maybe it's time you were told what you must realize. The world won't adore you, they'd rather ignore you. They'll think you're a monster because of your size. So I hope that set the tone for the reviews to come. So I thought this film was absolutely brilliant. It's really satisfying to uh, sit down in front of a film that you don't really know anything about. It's like two and a half hours long. So, you know, it's always like a little bit of trepidation starting a film of that length where you don't know um, much about it. But it really gripped me and blew me away. And it's brilliant in a lot of different ways. I saw someone describe it on Twitter as tonally ambitious, um, which is an interesting description. And, I'm, and I think that people tend to tar a lot of Korean, modern Korean movies with like, well, tar's a bit pejorative, but they describe them in the same kind of terms as films which are... Um, do not ta- like there's a lot of genre films that don't tackle genres in the same way that hollywood movies do and are like unafraid to introduce elements that don't traditionally fit um or have very like um strange uh, plot twists and like kind of slapstick humor and stuff like that and i wonder i'm sort of wondering if that is because they are particularly ambitious interesting directors or just because you know we're so attuned to this narrow set of um uh like atmospherical devices from hollywood movies that when things stray outside that we're we're just like i don't understand this film what's going on (laughs) and i think that's particularly true of horror which is a film that's so bound up with genre conventions that when films don't have that kind of straight tone that's the same all the way through you're like is this a horror film or what is it a slapstick comedy what's going on and i think maybe you just have to train yourself to appreciate it in a different way and one of the great achievements of the wailing is how completely unafraid it is to um, do all this stuff which um, in another movie you might think was detracting from the atmosphere. It's mostly set in bright sunlight. The main character is very bumbling in like quite an openly comedic way. And you'd think that that would lessen the tension of the movie. But it mixes the uh, these elements of like dark, horrible, um, horrifying stuff uh, with the um, lighter stuff just like um it it just it blends perfectly for some reason it's not a problem at all and there's one centerpiece like exorcism sequence which starts with a lot of like colorful dancing around and doing like ritualistic um shaman activity and it's kind of like it looks like a morris dancer the the main guy who's doing it um and so you're not it doesn't begin in like this foreboding like get ready for a crazy scene sort of way (laughs) But it like it goes on and it like cuts between him doing this ritual and another guy doing a ritual and the, the effect it has on this little girl who they think might be possessed. And after a few minutes of this, it starts getting really tense. And then it goes on a bit longer and you're like, I don't know, I, I felt abs- suddenly I was like, I'm terrified and I wish this would stop. <laughs> you know, it's like it's not it's not not just through the, um, can, you know, it going on for a long time, but the way that it the material is handled. Yeah, I don't know. It just—it was like it played a trick on me, you know. Well, exactly. It's like what you were saying about them not obeying the same kind of like genre conventions. It just makes you feel a bit unmoored because, like in a Hollywood movie, you'd know how the things were going to end, but because like it's kind of thrown out the rule book at this point, you're like, "Oh, Jesus Christ, what's going to happen?" Yeah, Uh, absolutely. And uh, I think it's also—it's not like I think you could have the movie described to you in a way that made you just think it was this crazy melting pot of like mental ideas and it's like what's gonna happen next I don't know (laughs) something insane probably 
But it's a film which is very meticulously made and very carefully plotted um, and quite intricately plotted. And there's a lot of stuff is like there. It's all there for a reason. And it feels like um, it's this puzzle. It's not like a sort of puzzle box of a movie, which throughout the movie is challenging you to pay attention to what you're watching and yeah. uh, is presented in such a way as to kind of say, like, this is going to be important later all the time um and uh there's a lot of twists and things don't go where you expect um yeah it really fills that two and a half hours it really fills that two and a half hours uh it has an absolutely like yeah like an amazing final act so it's the the sort of the way that the story ties together is extremely satisfying it doesn't it doesn't feel remotely like a film which is just like let's put the craziest elements to shock the audience in it's um you you feel very confident throughout that you're in the hands of someone who really knows what they're doing with the story and also knows what they're doing in each individual scene to um get a certain uh reaction out of you and there's a few real like amazing set piece sequences that are just incredibly tense um and you have absolutely no idea how they're going to end and yeah i thought it, i thought it was brilliant it really yeah what, what i say like I, w- I did find it genuinely terrifying at points and i think on reflection it like draws from these like core like horror ideas like first is like the idea of like the sort of stranger in the woods which I think it just is the part of the lizard brain of, you know, there's something in the woods is always terrifying. But it's the idea that like you can lose control and not have any control of your actions is doubly terrifying. And then the other thing it really successfully communicates is the sort of parental horror that you can't protect your child. Yeah. Like when you become a parent, like you're hardwired to protect your kin and the idea that you can't. And uh, the way that sort of happens to this main guy who starts off, like you say, as a sort of bumbling, fat, like idiot cop. It just like the way the comedy is used is like just he's very sympathetic to begin with. And yeah, then, like, and it's used to build up the bond with his daughter. Yeah, something. and then like it's very clever, and then the gear shift is just makes it even more like horrific. I think that you know Taken would be a much more dramatically effect you know movie if Liam Neeson was just this sort of fat idiot who was um, joking around with his kid at the beginning. It was Kevin James? Yeah, if it was Kevin James. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Wait, they didn't kind of make this movie with like, it's called like Confessions of an Assassin or something. It's on Netflix, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But um, like memoirs of an international assassin or something. But yeah, you know, he's bumbling around, bonding with his daughter, and then she gets kidnapped and he's got to like suddenly somehow turn into a badass to rescue her, you know? Yeah. That's, that's the way you go. If, this, if, this, uh, if The Wailing was about like a super cop right from the beginning, it would not work like nearly as well. Um. And I really like the folkloric element to it. It's it's feels like a movie that's quite well researched, and it's set in the modern day, but it's in this like remote village where people seem quite willing to um, go to like shamanistic rituals. There's an interesting mix of um, pagan and Christian religious imagery that's all kind of like thrown in together. Um, and when all the there's a lot of like ritualistic stuff to do with like shaking bells at stuff and things that they sacrifice and. Um, and I think that drawing on those traditions just makes for a very rich experience watching the movie because there's all these little details about the way that they cast spells and um, yeah. and all that sort of stuff, which I think is um, uh, it's just really cool. I don't know if it's just because I personally find all that stuff really, really interesting. No, but, no, no, I um, think you're right. Uh, but yeah, it's like all of the um, the legends have resonance for the, the, you know, it's that kind of like horror trope of like this, the legend from the past coming to life and turning out to be true or whatever. <laughs> and I guess because it's Korean, it's a bit less familiar to, you know, to a Western audience. So it feels extra fresh. My final word on it was like, I saw this with Dan and uh, after we saw the film, he said that film had everything. 
I think yeah. that's a good summation of the. Film. I think there's a good. It is a movie that that has everything. It will it will entertain you in every every possible way, and it's um, also just like yeah, a very very rich movie with a lot going on and, and now, a lot, lot to ponder afterwards. Yeah, and now more whale song. Ooh, time for a break from all the film chat. Have a cup of tea, maybe make a quick snack and telephone friends so you know where she's at. So, another film I saw at the London Film Festival was La Fille Enquenue, also known as The Unknown Girl. This is a new film by the Dardenne Brothers. The Dardennes. The art house darlings. Everyone loves the Dardennes. This was the first uh, Dardenne movie I'd seen. And the plot is as follows. Is as follows. The plot is as follows. Is as follows. <laughs> so, Adèle Hanet plays Dr. Jeanne Daven. She is a GP in Paris who is excellent at her job, so much so that she is about to get a promotion. And one night when she's packing up uh, at a surgery with her young intern, sort of junior doctor character, the doorbell rings and she tells not to bother answering it because it's way after the opening hours. And if it was really an emergency, they'd just ring twice. However, the next day, the police arrive because an unknown woman uh, has been found dead a few streets over. And it turns out she was a woman who was ringing on the doorbell and Jenny is driven by guilt uh, to find out what the girl's name is so she can uh, have a proper marked grave. That's a good setup for a movie. Yeah. So uh, I loved it. I thought it was brilliant. I was like, oh, the Dardenne brothers are pretty uh, pretty good. I ah. guess why these Dardenne brothers, I get why everyone loves them. And I um, was looking at some of the reviews for this film and the critical reactions used to be like, it's a lesser work for the Dardenne brothers. So I was like, they must be really shit hot if this is a lesser work. Um. If I had to describe the film as concisely as possible, I'd say it's a social realist film noir. Uh, and although those two genres are stylistically uh, opposites, thematically they can cover similar ground. And as many crime films have done in the past, a mystery plot is a really smart way to have social commentary in your film because an investigation narrative allows your protagonist to visit lots of different areas of different um, uh, economic, age, race, backgrounds, whatever in a way that is completely germane to the plot. And this is also true of a doctor who has patients from all walks of life come to her surgery. And the film kind of alternates between these two, like, characters coming to her and her seeking out characters. And the film is, among many things, a kind of snapshot of a community or a lack thereof. Uh, And it's very um, insightful about um, diversity in Paris. The idea of having a doctor as a sort of amateur gumshoe detective is a really clever one uh, because they're essentially good. Like, if you're going to be a doctor, you've got to be a good person. Just, sure. Just stands the reason. Unless, unless you're Harold Shipman. <laughs> unless you're Shipman. Assuming, assuming you're not Shipman. Okay. Third act revelation. Turns out she's a bit <laughs> Shipman-esque. But they're essentially good and they're smart and they have a logical pragmatism to them. Cause... Or Mengele. <laughs> <laughs> those two examples aside <laughs> generally to be a GP you must be a good kind of person yeah sure sorry I'll... no no that's all uh, which is why doctors are often like you know there's a lot of American cop shows uh, they play doctors or whatever but I think why it's particularly good here because this is a film about uh, the area like the community is that it investigates the concept of a doctor and how that functions in a society and when we think about um, this might begin a bit too lofty and overthinking this, but the idea of how uh, a doctor throughout the history of human society is like the sort of figure of power in the community, probably that and a priest. And at one point that was just the same person. 
but as society has become more secular and diverse like religious people don't really have the same kind of cachet anymore but doctors still do and people still you know everyone has to go to a doctor at some point we don't have to go to a priest and we don't question the motives of a doctor in the same way we question the motives of a priest you know everyone likes doctors yeah uh less so the clergy it seems and in many ways it's kind of supplanted a religious role in society and i feel like maybe this is just me but uh the doctor patient privilege is probably the closest thing i have to like a confession box you right, know what okay, i mean like yeah. a sort of stranger who i feel totally yeah. forgive uh, me father i have hemorrhoids <laughs> yeah but my, my this is a roundabout way of saying is that she's a good detective because people talk to her differently because of her status i see yeah like she is because she's a doctor like people open up to her because i don't know it's just like the power of that role in a society is like runs deep um and um she is brilliantly played by adele Hannay, and it's a very um technically impressive performance because she has this detached professional demeanor throughout the film which like never slips and she is just one of those people i think it's very true of public sector workers who like job defines them completely and so she is a doctor and like and everyone is sort of her patient everyone she interacts with and she has this coolness to her, but at the same time, she's obviously got this huge sense of guilt because uh, this act has kind of rocked her to a core because she's a person who wants to help people, but she let this person down. And the way this uh, actress conveys that through the most minimalist of acting is um, pretty staggering. Um, there's also a bit earlier on in the movie where she scolds the junior doctor for getting emotionally attached to a patient, kind of ironically. And that's sort of the theme of the movie. The direction is also brilliant. Um, I think the social realism in a genre film just amplifies the effectiveness of the plot because a bit like The Wailing, I guess, you're not in a particular genre, so you... Things uh, don't feel automatic. Exactly, yeah, nothing signposted. And what was kind of like, this is the opposite in a United Kingdom and it leaves a lot of space for the audience. It's so naturalistic, it doesn't tell you how to feel or like what to do in a particular scene. It means you have to like work a little bit harder as an audience, but it just makes the experience uh, all the richer. But it's not perfect. It's like because it's focused on one character, like some of the supporting players are a little underwritten. But I'm not sure if that's something I noticed on the first viewing because it's so naturalistic. I'm like, well, that guy doesn't talk that much. You know, that's not bad writing. It's just that that's just that guy. You just sort of accept things because it flows so seamlessly. But it is a very accomplished and satisfying piece of filmmaking. And the last 15 minutes are by far the best thing and like the ending is so perfect because the film has been building to it the whole way through and you don't realize till it happens and it's like best kind of, best kind of ending yeah and it's like you just did it you kind of pulled off the trick and it's like dardens you're good cool yesterday i bumped into imelda staunton she was up with her dog and we got talking i asked her what she does when she isn't acting she said she likes podcasts for relaxing imelda when you're in the mood what do you listen to she said i listen to one podcast i listen to one podcast all the other ones can kiss my ass i listen to one podcast film chat film chat film chat film chat film chat okay so um Danny just gave a great review of uh, The Thank Unknown you. Girl. Thank you. It was very, very eloquent, made a lot of great points, very positive. And that's why we are extra excited to be joined by both of the Darden brothers ourselves here with us in Film Chat. We've had a lot of big directors join us, but never two at once. It's a, it's an absolute milestone. It sounds like, sounds like they're uh, just here now. What the fuck am I doing here? Oh, 
Hey, be nice, okay? It's nice to be here in the film chat studio. No, it's not. Ah, man. Ah, what the fuck is this? Uh, hello, I'm Luke. And uh, I am Jean-Pierre. Thank you so much for making the time for us. I know uh, you're very busy. You're very obviously. busy, guys. Um, so I am not busy. I am uh, very busy, though. I do all the work. <laughs> Ah, you fucking asshole. I hear that you're both uh, big fans of UK television. Um, I was wondering, Luke, who who is your favourite ever contestant on The Apprentice? Oh, man. Uh, uh, uh. You fucking idiot. Don't you know the answer? It is Katie Hopkins. You love Katie Hopkins. No, she's, she's horrible. She's a horrible person. I don't like her at all. Yes, you do. You tell me all the time. No, Luke. No, I'm I'm Luke. Oh, gosh, you got me all angry. Sorry about that. Um, what about you, uh, Jean-Pierre? Who, who's your favorite contestant on The Apprentice? Uh, mine is uh, the wrestler guy. I don't know. Uh, what was his name? His name was Ricky, you fat idiot. His name was Ricky. He won. He won many years ago. Shut up. You, you, you don't even know Katie Hopkins' name. You don't know yes, what I, you're talking about. You're always embarrassing me like this. Leave me alone. Sorry about that. That's, that's fine. That's, that's, that's fine. You know, you're passionate, guys. Um, I, just I am not. Yes, you are. <laughs> I was just wondering, um, obviously you guys, you guys are from Belgium, and I was wondering if you could tell me, uh, how does the Belgian accent differ from the French one? Uh, uh, the Belgian accent is a bit like this. And uh, the French one is a little bit like this. Uh, uh. One of you sounds French, and the one sounds Belgian, even though you're both from Belgium. Yes, exactly. I have the better accent. No, mine is better. It's more French. You know, it, it, it's better to sound French than to sound Belgian. No, it is. Oh, man, you are such an idiot. I can't believe I'm here with you. Listen, I have the French accent, and my mother likes me more. Thanks a lot. Sorry about that. All right, it's time for the quick fire interview round, where we just fire a couple of questions, and okay. uh, and this this is directed to you both. Um, Monster Munch or what's it? Monster what's Munch. It? That's the end of the quick fire round. <laughs> Ah, uh, did I win or... Did I win? Did I win the really round? competitive. It's just more... It's interesting to hear your responses. No, fuck you. Oh, um, so, sorry. I, I got very excited there. No, everything for us is a competition. You have to give me closure. I would, I would say it was a tie. Sorry. Mm. So, um, you're in town to promote your latest film, uh, Unknown Girl. Um, we were just wondering, what's better, The Tomb of the Unknown Soldier or the film Unknown starring Liam Neeson? Uh, it is the one with uh, Liam Neeson because he has this lovely, uh, lovely voice. Uh, no, I like uh, the tomb actually because it's quite a nice place to just look and think about things. Yeah, but Liam Neeson, he has this big, lovely accent, you know. Uh, yeah, but it, you know, that's not that important compared to war, you know, Jean-Pierre. I don't think you, again, I don't think you really think about things. Listen, I'm allowed to admire a man's voice. Ah, oh, but so many people die, Jean-Pierre. This is... Um, uh, sorry about that. I'm really sorry that so many of our questions seem to be causing friction between the pair of you. Let's move on. Let's move on to another topic. Hopefully this one will be um, a little more positive to talk about. A little smoother. Your next film is going to be called The Passion of Neville Chamberlain. And it's an erotic historical drama. Um, Jean-Pierre, what can you tell us about that? 
Okay, well, let me tell you a bit of a secret. Uh, most of our films, we just come up with a name and then we kind of get down to uh, the set and we just kind of wing it. So, uh, at the moment, I don't know, there's going to be a guy who plays Neville Chamberlain and then, uh, I don't know, he might get nailed to a cross, I guess. Or, I mean, it depends on budget as well and if we can get Marion Cotillard or someone like that involved. That's the main thing, uh... Yes, I think so, um, but I also would not want to work with Marion Cotillard again because uh, she kept starting these arguments between me and Jean-Pierre and uh, it was an incredibly uncomfortable time. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Finally, um, I thought the performance of Adele Hane in Yonenga was brilliant, but I read originally that you had Chris Tucker earmarked for the role. I was wondering uh, why that was and uh, how come that didn't come to pass. Uh, it was because Luke was being too much of a pussy one night when we were trying to uh, go take him out drinking and he wouldn't join him for shooters and uh, torpedoes. No, that is ridiculous. I didn't want your torpedoes, Jean-Pierre. Your torpedoes are a stupid childish idea and Chris Tucker was not impressed. He did like, He did like one just so he could be part of the gang. But then you kept going, and you just found it really annoying. And uh, and I tell you, it was embarrassing for us all. You think you did a call because I didn't do enough? You did too many, Jean-Pierre. You did too many, man. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yes, very completely, yes. Um, very illuminating chat with you both. It's really very exciting to speak to you. Thank you. Your personal uh, hero is mine. <laughs> and mine. And maybe we can get you back one day, hopefully, and... Which one is uh, more of a hero to you? Is it me or me? Um, um, you're, you're both. You're both my I hero. I like you both a lot. <laughs> okay, guys. So okay. that's uh, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks very much. Thanks a lot to the Darden brothers, and, legends, and uh, and to our, all of our listeners out there in the dark. Um, Join us next week. We're reviewing Birth of a Nation, Chirac. I'm not a serial killer. Maybe something else. It's gonna be. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 